Almighty God, you've promised that your word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire, and it will succeed in the matter for which you have sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, amen. So the sermon text is on the back of your bulletin from John 16, and um, before we get into the actual outline, I want to make just a few comments about the, the verses, several verses in the text. And I have to admit to you that uh, John's Gospel is one that is so theologically dense that you can make a sermon out of any sentence in it. You, you really could. And so today, uh, in just a few minutes, we're going to be focusing on the final verse, verse 33. But before we go there, we're going to make a few comments. I think it's important to, to do so. For example, uh, verse 23, the opening verse of our text, uh, Jesus says, In that day, meaning when my work is completed, think of Easter, think of uh, the cross is behind him, he's risen. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Okay? And, and this is alluding to the fact that uh, because of his atoning work, we have direct access to the Father now. Through Christ, we have direct access to the Father. So we can talk to him, right? And he goes on, Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Now, before we think that, well, that's just a license to do uh, and say anything we may feel like, um, let me make this very clear. When you do something in the name of someone else, you are doing so as their representative. You are literally an extension of that person. And so when you do or say something or ask for something in their name, you're doing what they would do. You're saying what they would say. You're asking for what they would ask for. That's what it means. And, and so, if we're to ask the Father in the name of Jesus, then the, the implication is, we are to pray as Jesus would pray. And how would Jesus pray? Well, he gave us a prayer. Those are the petitions that please God most. And, and, and I'm first to admit that God will gladly hear, for Christ's sake, any of our petitions. But to pray in the name of Jesus is to pray as he would pray. To think of God as our true Father. To hallow his name, meaning what we do and say should reflect honor upon him. For his kingdom to come, his will to be done, and so on. This is what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. Is to pray as he would pray. Verse 24, until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be complete or full. You see, joy results from like-mindedness with Christ. To pray as he would pray. To pray for those things that he wants. Because those are the answers that will surely come. That will surely be fulfilled. Those requests will be fulfilled. And there's joy there in seeing that. 
and seeing someone lost come to the Lord, as happened to Lydia in Acts 16, that the Lord would open their heart to believe. And verse 28 summarizes really the entire Gospel of John. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. He's completed his work. He's going home. And verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Tribulation. And uh, this is a, a word uh, that is actually derived from an agricultural implement. And we, I think I've mentioned this on another occasion. A tribulum is a large uh, flat board. And underneath, um, the farmer has pounded in sharp pieces of flint. And the board is attached to an oxen. And you stand on the board and you go over the grain. And you tribulate the grain. You, you tear it up. Okay? And, uh, you're separating the kernel of the grain from the husk. And you're chopping up, uh, the uh, stem of the grain into, into straw that'll blow away. That's how you use a tribulum. And, and it's an ancient, uh, agricultural implement. And I've read that it's still used in some places in North Africa. But it's some, uh, kind of a Mediterranean thing. And so this is where we get our word tribulation from. And almost like we're the grain underneath the blades, right? And so Roman numeral one, tribulation is inseparable from the Christian life. It's inseparable. Uh, we've made the point uh, on other occasions that Christianity is by far the most persecuted faith on the planet. A worldwide, uh, one in nine Believers, Christians, experience high levels of persecution. One in nine. High levels of persecution. Every month, 345 Christians are killed for their faith. Not because they've broken the law, but simply because of what they believe. Every month, 105 churches or other Christian buildings, schools and that sort of thing, are burned or attacked every month, 105 Every month, 219, this is worldwide, Christians are imprisoned without trial. And, and this reflects what St. Paul wrote Timothy, that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, in America, we have what we call religious freedom. But religious freedom in America is being scaled back to um, what you're allowed to believe in your home or what you're allowed to believe in the church. But if you want to live out your faith on the job, if you want to live out your faith in uh, a career in academia, or, or if you want to express your faith in the public square, God help you. God help you. You know, Christians in America routinely lose their jobs. They lose their businesses. They lose their assets because their conscience may not allow them to participate in, let's say, a same-sex wedding or a gender transition event of some sort. How many of you recall, just a few months ago, the furor over uh, Karen Pence, uh, the wife of the vice president, 
this furor that erupted when it was discovered that she was employed in a Christian school. Oh, yes. She was employed in a Christian school where um, you're not allowed to live together before marriage. You're not allowed to advocate LGBT agendas in that school. And uh, now, that's just a regular Christian school. And thank God for it. But people were offended. They were complaining. Oh, is this right? Should she be employed there? Should that institution receive any sort of tax breaks? Because they're discriminating against people. This is where we're at today. You see, the problem with Karen Pence is that she actually lives out her faith. That's her problem. You can't do that. You keep it to yourself. Point A, our afflictions are part of the sufferings of Christ in this world. They're a part of the sufferings of Christ in this world, which are not yet exhausted. St. Paul wrote that I bear in my body the sufferings of Christ, which are not yet completed. I mean, Christ continues to suffer in the world, and you and I just experience a little bit of it now and then. We just share in it briefly. The hardship, whatever hardship we experience because of our faith is actually his hardship. And we're just participating in it briefly. Point B, our afflictions become a form of fellowship with Christ. Our afflictions become a form of fellowship with him. And this is what St. Paul meant when he wrote, uh, I, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. There's fellowship there. Now, let me be very clear. You have an inseparable bond with Christ, an eternal bond, a spiritual bond with Christ by virtue of your baptism, by virtue of, of all the promises in God's word regarding God's work in baptism. Those promises apply to you. That's your bond with Jesus. But when you share an experience with someone else, you also form an emotional bond with them. When you go through the same kinds of things that they experience, you get to know them. There's a sense of closeness that's there. It's, you know, it's like soldiers in combat. Uh, when, when they're under fire, they share that experience. There's a brotherhood that forms. There's a very close association that forms because they share that experience of being under fire, you see. And it's, it's like that with Jesus. We're privileged to share this experience with him. I'm not speaking of this as something we need to run from. I'm saying that it's something that when it comes, and we don't seek it, but when it comes to us, embrace it. Embrace it. Because this is, this is Christ in the world. This is how it is, you see. I would rather be in the valley with Jesus than on the mountaintop without him. It's really that simple. And, and tribulation is not just from the outside in. Okay? It is for, for those of us who believe, it's mostly from the inside out. It's not just pressure from the outside, but it's pressure from the inside. And that's sin. 
You know, the world opposes Christ and it opposes us. But the world lives in us. And what we should worry about is not what others do to us, but what we do to ourselves through our own foolishness. The greatest harm that we experience in life, most often, is that harm that we do to ourselves through our own disobedience or, or the damage we do to ourselves by our reaction to someone else's disobedience. Yeah, you know, I'm fighting this stupid allergy, and, and uh, it's crazy. I mean, why would my body react like this to pollen? That makes no sense. Pollen can't harm me. But it's the reaction that's harmful. And it's like that with us. When, when someone offends us in some way, I, it shouldn't have happened, I know. But our response to it is worse than the cause. I've done far more damage to me than you have done to me or anyone else has done to me. And my greatest regrets in life are not what happened to me, but what's happened in me. Not the sins of others, but my own sin. Those are my greatest regrets. And if you're honest, you'll agree. Your greatest regrets, probably, they should be, not what others did to you, but your response to what others have done to you, or what you've done to others, apart from their help. You know, in the world you'll have tribulation, not only from the outside in, but from the inside out. And then Jesus says this, but take heart, verse 33, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Literally, that, that, that verb, uh, nekao, in, in the Greek, we, we get our word neke or Nike, you know, like the sneakers from that. Uh, I've conquered the world. He's conquered it, you see. And, and this is, you know, we talked last week about proleptic speech and how um, uh, Jesus often speaks proleptically. He speaks of a future event as if it's already occurred. It's that sure and certain. That's the reason for talking that way. Uh, and, and so, uh, when, when you consider that in less than 24 hours of speaking these words, he's going to be nailed to the cross to speak of conquering the world, it, it, to, to most people that would seem extremely foolish. How can he speak that way? So what does he mean? Well, in the ancient world, when you conquered someone, you would take for yourself what belonged to them. You would, you would plunder them, right? And uh, the devil is the ruler of this world. And he holds people spiritually captive, you see. But Jesus, through his death and resurrection for the sin of humanity, Jesus has conquered the devil, meaning that wherever Jesus is proclaimed, wherever that death and resurrection of Jesus is proclaimed, the devil is bound and he's helpless. And Christ plunders the devil's people. And you and I are among that plunder. We've been taken out from under the devil's control, and we've been placed under the gracious, forgiving control of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is how Jesus overcomes the world, and this is how he overcomes the worldliness that still dwells in us. 
I think verse 32, together with with verse 33, is amazing. Look at verse 32. Behold, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and you will leave me alone. You will leave me alone. That's the reality. That's what's going to happen. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. That's how he responds. He knows ahead of time what they're going to do. And he offers them peace in advance. Roman numeral 2. With full knowledge that they will desert him, they will desert him and even deny him, that's Peter, Jesus promises his disciples peace. He promises them peace. In other words, point A, Jesus looks beyond the disciples' defection to their restoration. He looks beyond their defection to their restoration. That's the kind of Savior you and I need. We need somebody that looks beyond our deeds and sees our need for reconciliation, for forgiveness. And that's point B. In other words, he looks beyond our deeds and addresses our need. And I've got a little picture down there at the bottom. Got one circle, that's the world. You have the other circle, that's Christ. And that's the body of Christ as well. The line in the world circle is tribulation. The line in the Christ circle, the church circle, is peace. The peace that he gives, the forgiveness of sins, the unconditional acceptance, the restoration he provides. And the cross-hatched area, that's where we live. We live in the world. But we also live in Christ, in the forgiveness and the life that he alone gives. That he gives to people who desert him. People who deny him. That's who we need. That's how he overcomes the world. And he overcomes the worldliness in us. And that's the key to a successful marriage, by the way. When you enter into marriage, you should speak your vows in this way. I take you to be my spouse, knowing full well that you will fail me. I take you knowing full well that you will hurt me. You will disappoint me. You will fail to live up to my expectations. But I still take you to be mine knowing full well that Christ has taken me to be his. He knew full well that I would fail him, that I would not live up to his expectations, but he did not fail me. You did not leave me, and because of him, I will not fail you, and I will not leave you. Every marriage ought to begin that way at the altar. Because that's the truth. That's the reality behind any successful relationship. That's the gospel. That's how our Lord overcomes the world. And that's how he overcomes the worldliness that still lives in us. In Jesus' name, amen.
The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.